but we are entering in the first missionary journey of Paul, and we are uh, seeing the gospel go to the Gentiles successfully, and we'll see that through the end of the book as uh, they go through more and more trials, but the gospel continues to prevail and grow, and uh, to the end, all the way to fulfilling where the gospel is brought to the Roman world as a testimony for all times that God will achieve and fulfill his mission in this world. As we look at these verses, uh, again, we'll cover what we can. I'm intentionally going slow um, for several reasons. Um, one, it's, it's a very important thing to cover, and it turns out, thankfully, I couldn't finish last week. Um, and uh, thankfully, with things, certain things happening at this time, uh, we, uh, it helps me because I can go slow through it, and I've done a lot of prep. So uh, the lifting through these weeks will be just appropriate. Um, but I will uh, be faithful in digging through these texts. And I've been able to spend more time now on this particular section. And I'm glad I did because it helped me to see something I wasn't seeing to begin with. The overall message through the chapter has been who's leading this thing, that meaning, meaning the gospel conquest. But the next thing that I see in this text is really who's sustaining it. Who's, who's upholding and sustaining this thing? And in particular, what is sustaining the people of God? And so with that in mind, I want to read the text and then explain how, how I got there. So let's begin in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. 
And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, my God, bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. So I would like simply to have this subject theme in mind that I see here in the text and we'll explain how we get there is that what is sustaining this people and in the goal of finding also that which sustains us as his people. Uh, So how do we get there? Well, the first thing is we have to see what it is clearly that's sustaining them. And it's stated here from beginning to end in sort of a bookend that theologians call an inclusio. And in that inclusio or that bookending, we see it beginning with the gospel of grace and it ending with an encouragement to continue in the gospel of grace. So we get the answer quite quickly. The very thing that sustains the people who are saved by the gospel of grace is continuing to be and continuing to trust in the gospel of grace. In other words, that which brings you into the glorious salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ is that which also maintains you in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not going to have to go look for another gospel to carry you along to the end. But the gospel that saves is the gospel that sustains. Now, this is very important because it seems as we become Christians, there may be an inclination from our fallenness to say, yes, that is, this has brought us in. This is all well and good. We've been born into the kingdom. And then we might be taught falsely or we might think falsely that we have to go find something else that would kind of hold us together until the end, help us persevere. And we see this in many uh, false teachings concerning the loss of salvation, where people are told that it will be by their works that they will be sustained when it was not their works that saved them. And so what, what Paul very well indicates in the message he's preaching is the gospel that saves is also the gospel that sustains. So you're never, if you, if you think, well, I have to uh, know something more than the gospel to sustain me, well, then we're, we're in error. What sustains us at the heart is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it has a lot of facets, doesn't it? Because it's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's called um, the gospel of God. Uh, It's it's called good news because that's what it is. Um, Good news of Jesus Christ. It's called here, in a sense, the gospel of grace. In Ephesians, the gospel of our salvation. So you have all these terms. Well, which is it? Well, that gospel has all those facets to it and are important to us. 
But the point of the matter is that you don't go on, you don't grow out of the need of the gospel. You actually grow in your understanding of the gospel to sustain you to the end. And the certainty that you will be sustained to the end is as certain as God is the one the gospel is about. So it is to leave off from a gospel that is about God to make a gospel that is about man. We do ourselves injury. We do ourselves sorrow. We do ourselves injury to our assurance. We do injury to others by teaching anything other than the gospel that saves is the gospel that sustains. That in itself should be worth the ticket. And based on how much we've eaten, that may be all you hear. So I wanted to make sure I got it in. But let's see how we get there in this text. And that is, we start with the gospel. He starts out with an affectionate appeal, showing it's not a hyper-Calvinistic faith. God is in charge of salvation. Jesus redeems us. He is sent by the Father to do so. He takes His Spirit and applies by His Spirit the salvation. Nothing that man has done earns salvation. Nothing man can do can save himself. We know all that. But it does not mean that an appeal does not need to be made to sinners so that they would trust in Christ because they must believe they must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember one scholar um, along the way, I think it was Michael Haken, when I was on a Facebook account, I'd made a statement and we were um, in acquaintance at the time. And I think I put up something um, about the song I decided to follow Jesus. And he mentioned that's actually just such a good song for a Calvinist because though God saves us, we also must actively believe. We must trust. He doesn't believe for you. He does not. He does not believe in your place. He died in your place. But an appeal must be made to sinners to believe in Christ and literally into Christ. And at the end of that, we say, like Donald Gray Barnhouse famously taught, we go through the door of the cross, if you would, and we turn around, we go through the door, it says, whosoever will come, and we come. We believe that gospel is for us, and we accept God's word, and we turn around and we see chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's a good picture of sovereign grace that is balanced by the need for the appeal to the people of God and to the world. So brothers, he says affectionately, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, those aren't believers he's talking to. He's talking to those who are part of the family of Abraham, but not necessarily the family of God. Israel was not a saved people. They were chosen and elected according to their flesh. They were a type of the church, but they were not the church. There were people that were in the church, if you would, in Israel, but the Israel was never the church. A lot of people get tripped up and they'll speak about replacement theology. There's not a replacement. It's that that was the type that is fulfilled in what's called the anatype. And those may be big words to you, but the idea is there's this thing that's shadowy. And then there's the substance of the church. So you have the shadow of Israel that's this type. It points to the church, but it's not the church. It shows what we would be like without regeneration. We see these people that are disobedient, 
laid low in the wilderness. They didn't obey the Lord. And then we are introduced in the New Testament that the way you persevere, the way you're sustained, the way you're saved, and you're in a body that's not going to apostatize like Israel did, is only through what Jesus does. And the people that, there's some people back in this Old Testament that we read that look like Christians. In a sense, they are because they looked forward to Christ's coming. They weren't saved a different way. And don't you know that if the same gospel saved them from the beginning of time, post-fall until Jesus came, don't you know that the same gospel is what saves everybody in all time? That gospel is the only way that a sinner can be saved, and it's the only way that you have anybody being sustained through the wilderness journeys. Now, we are in the wilderness of this world, if you would. But we're not meant to wander. We're meant to walk with God. We're meant to be in the world, but not of the world. We're meant to take dominion in the world insofar as God calls us in this world to bring the gospel to the nations. Now, he says clearly who he's talking to, family of Abraham. And he says, those who fear God, which we learn later, we have proselytes, meaning converts to Judaism, not to Christianity, to Judaism. They fear God, but it does not mean that they're Christians. And so it it appears these are prime objects to preach the gospel to. Because they fear God. So you're going to talk to them about God. And it should seem that a reception from the word of God being proclaimed is going to be fair and good by them. It's not always the case as we see. But this message of salvation is brought to the Jew first, we see in the Bible, and then to the Greek. And it's going to the Greek because we'll see in this text how later it will, it will change here, moving from the, the, the Jew largely to the Greek, non-Jew. But it is a message of salvation. What are we saved from? We're saved from hell, eternal condemnation, deserving of every person born into this world, as having Adam as their representative. We're saved from sin so that we don't have the penalty of our sins. We'll see in in the doctrine of justification that we're declared righteous the moment we believe. But the question we're getting towards, because it's not the issue that we may be questioning today, are we declared righteous before God when we believe? We may all believe that. I hope we do. But the pivotal question is, Is that justification upheld as we journey through the wilderness of this world? Is God going to be able to uphold us and preserve us and bring us all the way home? And we will still be justified. Because it's one thing to become a Christian and to believe on the Lord And to experience in that day upon which you did some sense of the freedom. But then we go out into the wilderness of this world. We begin to get our feet dirty. We begin to realize that we still struggle with sin that hasn't gone away. 
we begin to feel the condemnation of it. And we have to reckon with, is this gospel powerful enough to raise the sons of men and not merely the Son of God? Is this gospel a gospel that will sustain sinners who are first justified by it? Does this justification go on to eternity? Or is this just a justification and then do your best? And the argument is, this is a justification that goes on because the way the gospel is shared here first. It says here, in introducing this message of salvation, um, and it would be bad news, wouldn't it? said, okay, we well, can be declared righteous today. And now you've got to figure out a way to keep it. That would be bad news. Be bad news and said, well, I'm going to be with you today for this moment and tell you how much I love you. And then good luck to the end. I'm not going to help you conquer sin. I'm just going to say you're free from it, but you're really not. It would be bad news. This is a gospel of salvation. We want to know what the salvation means. So we see, he says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. And I love the way he begins that because we immediately start to see the gospel is for all men, all people. And that means those in authority. In most places that we go to bring the gospel, nobody will mess with the people when you bring it to the peasants. But when you go after their rulers and you call them to repentance, persecution is raised immediately. Because you're saying that this gospel is also the way the highest men in the land are saved. That all people have to submit to this gospel and this king, including the king of the land. That's where the rub is. But you notice in the very beginning here, it says, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. That's going to come importance when we read that second Psalm quote here in a minute. Because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Think about that statement. Rulers are not there because they're lacking education, because they lack the ability to read or study, or they lack reading of the great books. They, that's not the issue. These are well-educated, trained in the best type of man ruling the land. And they did not understand this. Of course, had they understood, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But the point of the matter is, for now, is that the greatest ruler in the land, the most educated, the greatest amount of degrees, does not entitle anybody to the ability to understand who Jesus is. It will not be able to make someone in their affections of their heart understand the value and the glory and the true princeliness of Jesus. That's kind of what we read, wasn't it? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, hasn't he? Hasn't he when he, he sets forth a gospel? That requires all men, great and small, to come to him to have this understanding. That he alone can grant it. 
It's a humbling thing, no matter where we are in our lives, but especially for those that rule. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death. You remember Pilate? Pilate was clearly recognizing Jesus was without sin. He had done no guilt. He states it very plainly. It shows up in the what's called the Apostles' Creed, even, that that person goes down in history. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We have a gospel that is not merely in a bunch of theoretical points or bullet points. We have a gospel that's breathing out of history and telling us what exactly happened in history and who the players were in history and how these persons were unable, as great as they were, to be saved without the same gospel. And it says, when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. We show here that he is certainly buried. He is dead. He's laid in the tomb. So he is now crucified for our sins and buried. But then it says God raised him from the dead. And this is important to Luke's writing. Because Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, whereas John, we'll look at tonight, emphasizes the deity of Jesus in regards to his resurrection. Let's put it this way. When you read John, you'll read things along the lines of by his own power was raised. You'll read the idea that Jesus himself raised himself, that idea. But here with Luke in Acts and in the book of Luke, the primary way that he's going to speak is to the humanity of Christ. And many people forget, I forget at times, that the first controversy in the church wasn't about the deity of Jesus. It was assumed the first controversy was about the humanity. And you read that in 1 John, that they had to be introduced saying that which we've seen, that which we've touched, that we held, we, we, we were with. We, we declare him to you so you may have fellowship with us. They're talking about in the flesh. In John's gospel, the last gospel and probably the last book written in the Bible, where we see there's no temple, the temple's Jesus. Very intricate theological work. It's starting out there with he became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You see how John speaks. John's speaking in terms of deity. And here we're seeing in terms of humanity mainly. We see that he's saying God raised him up. Who's that? The father raised the son from the grave. And I believe that's intentional in regards to the point that I'm endeavoring to make from the text, and that is that this is the gospel that sustains sinners. Our representative was upheld by the Father, bringing him out of the grave. The Father reaching down and bringing him out of the grave because he was without sin, and he paid the price, and the offering was acceptable to him. And so we see that God did this. Raised him from the dead. And then it says this. It doesn't leave out. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses 
to the people. So they could very well have gone to anybody. They could have they had a, a million chances to disprove this gospel in history. But it was never done. Because of the amount of witnesses that God gave to see the living Christ in this land, they could not refute the fact that not only had he died, but that he was raised. It was very evident. It should be that way with us in some respect. When this gospel hits our lives, there should be such a difference. No matter if we're growing up in a home that's Christian or whether we are coming out of a, a life that is very unchristian, whatever the case is and its, and its ideas, the change of the heart is that now you love God. Now you have affections. You yourself love Him, though you've not seen Him. You believe in Him. There's joy inexpressible and full of glory. Your affections have been raised to love this Jesus. And only God could do that in the heart. There's such a difference made when the dead man is raised to life and he appears to people. And they are witnesses to this at the time of this writing. And we bring you, here it is, the good news. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And we'll get to the, the quote here. But the main thing here is we're seeing that it is the gospel of grace doing this. It parallels 1 Corinthians 15. In some ways, I plan to go there first, but I did it backwards. So 1 Corinthians 15 I remind you, brothers, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. Now, look at what Paul's saying. This is a gospel you received, and it is a gospel in which you are literally standing. And by which you are being saved. See it? He makes it very clear. It's the gospel that saved you. It's the gospel by which you're standing. It's the gospel by which you are being saved. And so you see the same point being made. The gospel that saves you is the gospel who, that continues to sustain you in life. And by which you're being saved, if you, if you hold fast the word I preached to you. Well, what is the word? The gospel. Unless you believed in vain. So the rub is this. The only chance of you not persevering in the faith is if you did not get the faith to begin with. The only chance of you falling away and apostatizing is if you did not get the gospel to begin with. So it's really important to get the gospel, isn't it? Now, another convincing proof to me that what this text is about is the very thing I'm preaching. And I'm not just coming up with something cute here. Is the fact that in the middle there's a little note we read last week. And Mark left them. John Mark left them. Remember? And that is a picture of apostasy. We find out that, that Mark ends up being one who was sustained. How was he sustained? How was it that he could leave and even Paul the Apostle think from all what we would read think that John Mark doesn't need to be with us on mission because he's not true. Because later we'll see the conflict between him and Barnabas on this whole deal. So we, how is it that Mark 
can have a blunder on the mission field and go home to be with mom and actually be a true believer, be restored, and and get back on the field again and be useful to Paul. How can that happen? This gospel is how that happens. So it should teach us something immediately, right? We should be careful to judge quickly of the matter. Because there are those on the field who may, for whatever reason, appear to fall away. But if they have the gospel, they will not ultimately fall away. Wasn't that good news? It's good news for anybody that makes a mistake. It's a good news for anybody who shrinks back at a time. It's good news for anybody who not only feels like giving up, but gives up for a period. It's good news for people like that. It may be infuriating news, though, for the proud. Who wants to just pounce down on such people. We don't know. What we do know is that whoever gets the gospel, whoever receives the gospel, truly and deeply, are never going to fall away ultimately, long term, from the gospel. And it's not because of them. The whole proof is it's not because of them. It's because of God. It's not a gospel of them. It's not a gospel of the church. It's not a gospel of a certain person, except it's a gospel of Jesus. It's a gospel of God. It's a gospel of the kingdom. It's a gospel of that heavenly kingdom of God. It cannot fail. The only way it fails is if we, as it says in these words, believed in vain. In other words, we really didn't believe it. We really didn't trust in Jesus. We really didn't have, we might have had him in our head, but he wasn't in our hearts. That's the only way it fails. And it's not a failure because of God. It's here because people do have the possibility to believe in vain. Now, I said I'd go as far as I can, so I may not, may not get all the way through. But For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Notice the same pattern, same subjects of Acts 13 that we just read. What I also received, here it is. Christ died for our sins. That was back in Acts 13. In accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now this is written later, so you can expect there to be these details added in. That's normally what happens. There's a brevity, and then there's greater understanding and details added in. And so the gospel here, though, even though it has more specific details, it has the same Headings, the same subject matter as what we just read. He died for our sins, according with the scriptures. He was buried. The third day he rose again, and then he appeared to many witnesses. So do you see that back in 13, where we read the very thing. Those in Jerusalem, the rulers, they didn't recognize him. So they turn him over. 
He's not worthy of death, but they, they crucify him. He's dead. They put him in a tomb. He's buried. He's raised from the grave by the Father. And then he appears to many witnesses. Same thing. So it is very clear we're talking about the same gospel. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that's the gospel by which you stand. And that's the gospel by which you are, present tense, being saved. All right. So we're just hammering that point to make it so clear. Because we need it to be made clear to us. We need to be reminded that this good news is sufficient to carry us all the way home. And so he ends saying, he says, this, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Notice, again, the emphasis is on Jesus being raised, not himself. It's true that he raised himself by his own power, as we read in other uh, Gospels. But the emphasis for Luke is the Father raising Jesus. And I think that's just a, an emphasis to be reminded this Jesus the one who raises Jesus raises us. As it is also written, and he quotes the second psalm, and this is probably as far as we're going to get today. He quotes the second psalm and he says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there, these are the proofs. There's four scripture proofs in regards to this point. Four scripture proofs to tell us about how the gospel that saves also sustains the believer. And the first is here. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And I may get further actually. We're, we're, just, we're going along with this. We'll see how it goes. So you are my son. When you, when you hear that psalm, Psalm 2, it's the psalm that announces the kingship of Jesus. The reign of Christ. And here he says the resurrection means. It's fulfilling this. So we're not saying that he's not eternally begotten. He is. There was never a time that the son was not. He is God the son. He is the second person of the Trinity. The father, the son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Distinguished and And yet we see they are not the same, different in role and function, equal in power and glory. We know that the Son has always been, He is God. However, the emphasis here is not on that. The emphasis is, Luke is saying, the resurrection of Jesus fulfills, you are my Son, today I've begotten you. What happened in the resurrection put in place what was prophesied by the second psalm. That instituted the reign of Christ at the resurrection. His exaltation began at the resurrection. His humiliation went to the tomb. Understand? He was humbled and he humbled himself unto death and he took that death on a cross and he was buried. He was humbled throughout his life. But now he begins to be exalted and his exaltation begins with him being announced now as the king. 
overall. Part of this is quoted at his baptism. Some editors have added the whole, but the part of it is quoted at his baptism. It just says, um, it speaks of, of half of this verse. But it doesn't put the whole, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It doesn't give that fullness to it. Why? Because the resurrection was, was to bring the fullness. Now, he is king, ruler, and he's, we'll see, on the throne of David. That's the first proof. That's the first proof of that this gospel is what sustains his people. That saves his people sustains. You say, how? Because if the one who is our savior is not king over all things, then one of those all things could bring us down in a moment. He has to rule over it all. He has to be in control of it all. He has to be reigning over it all. Satan has to be, in some sense, chained from being able to accuse us without success. We have to have a king to defend us in heaven. Therefore, God raised his king. That's what we get. What an assurance, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Right? You don't have that unless he is king now. If we are waiting for him to be king, we are on our own until he becomes king. He's king today. He reigns today. We don't have a gospel whereby we are going to only be saved then. And we don't have a gospel by which we simply are saved back then. We have a gospel by which we are being saved now to the end. Do you get that? Do you get and understand the importance of your Lord is on a throne reigning in heaven and your salvation depends on the fact of it? Today you are my son. Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And notice the emphasis as for the fact. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Now the question is, will the king live forever? Will the king suffer corruption? Will the king go on forever? Is he an eternal king? Or could it be? Could it be that we have something to worry about? That that king somehow being raised from the grave, being crowned as king, can somehow die again? And be corrupted in the grave? No, it says the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Meaning, his resurrection is one that is permanent. That's unlike anyone that was ever raised. Lazarus was raised. There were widows' sons raised. But Jesus was raised forever. He's the firstborn from the dead in this way. He's the one who leads the way. He's the one that gives us hope that the grave doesn't have the last word. That we will be raised because he first was raised from the grave. Think about the impact this would have on a, a man like Mark. He's gone home to be with his mom. And he would be there. And obviously would probably start to regret some things. What if I just kept at it? 
Why'd I give up on that? Why didn't I just stay? And don't you know, between Barnabas, that son of encouragement, and Peter, some tradition says, they helped Mark. And I would dare say, they had to hear something of this kind of thing. And he had to hear something of this thing. Because the gospel doesn't change. And it would encourage him. And it would put him back on service. In such a way that even the one who gave up on him because of his apostasy. We're not blaming Paul on that. He only got off what he said. What he saw, I mean. We're not blaming him for that at this point. We're simply saying that Mark was a prime candidate to hear this good news that perseveres the sinner, preserves him. And so he says that no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And that means the covenant with David is now fulfilled and all that was promised to David, the kingdom, is now his. Remember, that's a shadow. David's kingdom was not about just a kingdom in Israel. It's a kingdom overall. And now Jesus is on the throne of David. And he says in another psalm, so he's quoting scripture. You will not let your holy one see corruption. And so he quotes it saying this is the basis as to why this is our true David. This is the David that lives forever. This is a king. David, as you know, failed. David, as you know, died. David, as you know, as Paul says, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. This David doesn't. Your king is secure on the throne, therefore your salvation is secure in him. That's good news. That's something that makes the heart of the sinner who's been saved by this grace leap because it's such good news. And how horrible a news it would be that I would be told one day you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And then to be told the next day, oh, you big sinner. How in the world could you be a Christian? I need that gospel that tells me the day after and the day after and the week after and the month after and the year after the God who saves me secured me. And will take me all the way home. Let it be known to you, therefore. Here's another plea, right? Notice the preaching of the gospel is pleading. It does not have a, a, um, an invitation at the end like American Christianity has falsely put out in revivalism. It invites sinners again and again and again in the same sermon. It's calling sinners to repent and believe throughout. Brothers, brothers, believe in this Jesus. Come to this Jesus. Put your faith in this Jesus. Because people are not saved by simply walking revival service aisles. In spite of it, some are. But the gospel preaching of the New Testament was a gospel that invited people again and pled with people repeatedly saying, come to Christ, believe in Christ, trust in Christ. And you don't outgrow that. You don't come to church. You see, you can outgrow the one thing. And we all stand there and sing 20 just as I am's. And we're waiting for somebody 
to go ahead and end this thing. We just want to be put out of our misery. And so that's how you ended up with rededication after rededication. Because you had to have something happen at the end. You're all waiting for it. And it gave meaning to the preacher and it gave meaning to the church. Because if nothing was happening like that, it almost seemed in a utilitarian kind of way. In a, a, a way that people were convinced that you had to have a purpose for everything. And not merely the fact that something could be made just to be beautiful. You see, you see the difference? Wouldn't it be something... Wouldn't it be something that if a world started looking at people and saying it's not about what they can do for the world. It's not about what they can do for the state. It's not even about what they can do for the church. It's about the fact God made them. That's their value. From the babe in the womb all the way to the elderly in the nursing home. Those are God's image bearers and deserve the defense and the crying out of the king to protect them. We bring that gospel to our leaders. We call them to repent of legalized abortion. We call them to repent of assisted suicide. We call them to repent of treating people only on the basis of their use for their abuse. We can't make them do that, but we can preach the gospel. That tells them the view God has of all things. And even if they don't. We can look at things the way God looks at things. Let it be known to you. Plead brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes. And here's the word freed. Notice the footnote in the ESV. It's the word we get our word justification from. He is freed or justified from everything for which he could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. So you have the gospel preached. The gospel has to include at its very entrance. Justification is God declaring you, forgiving you of all your sins. And then declaring you righteous on the basis of what Christ has done. And who Christ is. And it says the law of Moses could not do that. So the way you're going to persevere is not by the law of Moses. The law has its place. We do want to obey the law. The law is not abrogated in that sense. We are to obey God's law. The coastlands wait for God's law. You cannot separate the law from the gospel, but you must distinguish it from the gospel because the law is not the gospel. The gospel is pure God's work fulfilling as the last Adam. He came and did what the first Adam failed to do and has earned for us life and peace and hope and joy that can never be taken away from us. The law says do this and live and we can't do it and live. Or we can't do it so we can't live. Christ did it. To give us life and we trust in the gospel. We don't go to the law and begin to say, okay, now that I've begun in the gospel, I'm going to be saved by the law. No. The law does play a part in our sanctification for we would not know what it is that sin is. And if it wasn't for the law, we would not know how to judge each other or judge the nations without the law. 
We would not know how to inform lawmakers of what the Bible says without the law. We see the purposes of the law if it's used lawfully. But it is the gospel that sustains you. You don't look to the law to find assurance. You want to look to the law, you'll find conviction. You'll find where you fall short. And we need that or we won't grow. But there's a big difference between working on that growth and working on the assurance we are to have to sustain us and keep us on the field, even when we are convicted by the law. We have been freed, it says here, justified, declared righteous by God purely on the basis of what the gospel of grace did. And therefore, it says, beware Same kind of thing Galatians says, beware, don't accept another gospel that's not a gospel that mixes the law and the gospel. You can't confuse the two. This is all from the idea of the the Council of Chalcedon when it talks about Jesus. Jesus, you can't mix his humanity. He's human and he's divine. He's all these things. They're without confusion. The law and the gospel cannot be confused. Can't just mix them up together in a bowl. The gospel must remain the gospel. The law must remain the law. And it says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. What is he talking about? That's the, the great book of Habakkuk you were reading today in your quiet time or this week, right? And you were there in Habakkuk and you were just spending all that time there in that minor prophet. And You were thinking about Habakkuk and you saw this verse and it speaks of the scoffers. What is it talking about? It's talking about those in Israel, the type of the church, not the church, the example for the church, not the church, that they did not and they would not believe and they would not accept God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar, coming and invading the land. It said, if you want to be saved, you're going to have to surrender to this who is an enemy to you. And those who did were saved. And it is just as outlandish to any of us to begin with in our lost state to surrender to Jesus because all our life, however short or however long, he seems to be an enemy if we don't get introduced to him about who he really is. They are being warned. Don't be among the scoffers. Don't be among those who scoff at this message. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they receive it. They say, we want to hear this. This is a gospel that sustains. And just to underscore it. When they responded that way, here's the way Paul and Barnabas respond. As they spoke with them. They didn't urge them. Okay. Go and spend your time on the law right now. They said, no. Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. It is by the gospel of grace that saves the sinner that thereby that sinner is sustained. This is suffice to make our point, and I believe it is the very point Largely on the basis of the context, and especially Mark being in that picture. This gospel is for people that have failed God miserably. 
but they have believed that gospel. And they need to be reminded of this gospel and continuing in it so they can be back in service for God again. And perhaps, perhaps this may be not as relevant to you, but perhaps you know people are giving up and they need to hear the good news. But perhaps it is more relevant to you than you think, because a lot of times we think we know more than we do. Life, as it goes along, we realize how little we know. And life's a lot more, it's, it's more than about what you know. It's more than about your head. Christianity is not just the head, it's the heart, it's the hands. Just because you have a lot of knowledge, that may just puff you up and make you into a very prideful man or prideful woman. True maturity happens when the head, heart, and hand are working together in health because they keep trust in the gospel and they're humble before Almighty God. True, true grace of God is going to produce true humility. He gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. And those who humble themselves are casting their cares upon God. Whatever cares you have, you can cast on God. Humble yourself before God. Admit to God, it's not what I know today. It's the one who knows me. It's not, it's not how much and how good I love today. It's the one who loves me so well. It's not the power in my hands that I bring that, that sustains me. It's the power of his hand that holds me. It's not that my affections are what they should be or my works are what they should be or my knowledge is what it should be. And I want all those things to improve. It's the fact that he's everything that he should be. And he's king. And he's not going anywhere from his reign. And he's not going to suffer corruption. He's not ever going to perish. We will perish. Others will perish. Others will let us down in this world. But he never does. He is king forever. He reigns now. He's saving you past, present, unto future. He is able to bring you all the way home. And aren't you glad you have a gospel? I remember the book, I think Derek Thomas wrote it. The gospel, it brings you all the way home. It's not going to leave you part of the way and not bring you all the way home. He's going to take you all the way there. And you can, you can bank on that. Because what he did, not because what you do. Let us pray. We stand together, please. Father, thank you for your grace. This gospel of grace is extraordinary. It's not a gospel of us. It's a gospel of you. It's the good news. It thrills our souls to know that you hold us. That you love us. And that you choose to live through us. Help us to continue in the grace of God as this text encourages its hearers. Help us not to be among the scoffers of it, but to believe you will fulfill that mission in our lives and in this world. And now as we come to this table to remember your son and what he did, the very basis by which we are justified, that he died, was buried, rose again, and appeared to many, that we remember that his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us and these elements of the bread of communion and that of the wine, that we would be reminded of this new covenant, a new covenant that saves sinners, 
that is the fulfillment of all the covenants, all the promises, including the one to David, that we come before you, our King, today, and we come to remember you and to praise you. We come to look outside of ourselves, examining, do we believe in you? And if we do, we hear the great welcome to the table. You invite us to this supper. You invite us now to come. And for those who may be here today, Father, who have not tasted and seen yet the Lord is good. Oh, we pray for them. That they will soon be able to partake of that which they only observe with their eyes. Make them taste and see with great affection that the Lord indeed is good all the time. Amen. You come.